It's May 27, 2022, Memorial Day. A few days before Eular begins, but no, it's the Room Now podcast, and I'm Jack Cushwood, Room Now. This week on the podcast, it seems like we have a lot of recommendations. New drugs, things to do in fibromyalgia, testing, monitoring, and it seems like it's all a bunch of hooey, but we're going to discuss it anyway. Let's start with an announcement that came out this week from the EMA and their committee that makes decisions on recommendations for new drug and their new drugs and their indications. The CHMP has recommended a number of rheumatology drugs that are already approved in the EMA and the US, but in the EMA they're not yet approved for these new indications, so Secukinumab, Cosentix, there's a recommendation to be uh, approved for uh, juvenile PSA and ERA in kids. As you know, it is approved in the United States for those indications, but seems like the EMA is going to follow suit. Alumiant or baricitinib is going to have its day with the great new alopecia areata data, and that seems like that's going to happen. Uh, Upatacitinib or Rinvoke is up for approval, a new indication, that being ulcerative colitis in the in Europe. And lastly, although it's approved in the United States, Tofacitinib or Zelgiance has yet to be approved in uh, the in Europe, but is now up for approval with the recommendation of the CHMP. Uh, these are not final decisions. Uh, the EMA has still has to rubber stamp this for those to go through, but it looks good for those drugs. Uh, a nice study about gout, I think, heightens a concern of mine, and that's gout and hypertension. Um, a cohort of 100 patients with gout, half of them had hypertension. Nearly half of them, um, it was not well controlled. It was undiagnosed in almost 20%. Um, and when gout and hypertension existed, usually like 90 plus percent of the patients were not yet at their target uric acid levels. So we know that comorbidities are usually mean worse disease or poorly controlled disease. And that seems to be the case here in gout where, as you know, comorbidities are rampant. Um, but if you have a gout patient with hypertension, you better start paying attention um, because I think the outcomes here are not going to be good. That's why we see more cardiovascular events, more renal disease, etc. cetera. Uh, another study that looked at um, non-hospitalized um, gout patients, um, I'm sorry, hospitalized gout patients, uh, a thousand of them, saw an inverse relationship between whether the gout patients had CKD, kidney disease, or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and that there was a negative association between those. What? What does one have to do with the other, and does it even matter? Again, there's a recommendation that you should be mindful of this, but is this not like a statistical oddity? I look at this data, and there are negative associations, meaning if you're a gout patient and you have fatty liver disease, you're less likely to have kidney disease. And so what does that mean? Again, sometimes I look at reports like this and I say, are they just fishing for p-values here? Are they trolling for p-values here? What are they doing? Because this doesn't make much sense to me. This is a study out of China. And, you know, in Southeast Asia, there's a whole lot more liver disease. So I'm not really sure what this means. And I'm gonna, my takeaway message is it means nothing. And I just wasted 60 seconds of your time.
I'm not going to waste your time. I'm going to point you towards a New England Journal um, case. It's one of them clinical images things that the New England Journal has. It's worth looking at, especially if any of you who are below the age of 50. Why? Because it's a case of reactive arthritis. And you don't see reactive arthritis. In my fellowship, I saw a lot of reactive arthritis. And that was the beginning of the HIV era. And people started using a lot of condoms. And all of a sudden, boom, reactive arthritis went away. We don't see much reactive arthritis anymore. It's... Fellows don't see it in the emergency room like I did when I was in my fellowship. This is a 40-year-old case with a two-week history of a scaly foot rash. Keratoderma blenaragicum, say that three times fast. Forget it. Spell it for me, and you win today's prize. Keratoderma blenaragicum had low back pain. All this occurred a week or two after diarrhea and a urethral discharge. There was a psoriatic uh, rash on the scalp, trunk, hands, nail changes. A few swollen joints, a CRP of 59, sterile pyuria, and HLA-B27 positivity. This is really reactive arthritis. These patients respond well to acute therapy. Good luck trying to get them on chronic therapy because they're nomadic and they hardly ever come back. That was my experience back in the 80s. Uh, we don't have a lot of sort of longitudinal studies of reactive arthritis. Again, if you haven't seen reactive arthritis, you should look at the pictures they're kind of disgusting, but really telltale and very accurate, uh, and read the case. It's very worthwhile. I like the study about lupus and pulmonary embolism, a study of 86 patients, um, average age 38 years. They had lupus for about four years, uh, and overall, 20% of them died. Um, didn't say whether it was directly due to the PE. Of those that lived... The three-year survival rates were 79%, meaning 21% of these people died. Bottom line is having PE and lupus is probably a bad thing. And I know you certainly do testing for antiphospholipid antibodies. Lupus anticoagulant is the one test that you should be doing, according to Michelle Petrie. The predictors of mortality in this cohort was the presence of thrombocytopenia and lymphocytopenia. The patients who did the best in this cohort, those that were on hydroxychloroquine, and has antithrombotic effects, and those who received early anticoagulation, not surprising there. Um, another report about non-steroidals in COVID. I don't even know why this is even an issue, but it keeps showing up like it could be an issue. Um, put this in the ivermectin hydroxychloroquine bucket when talking about hydroxy about about COVID. But this study, which looked at 38 centers, retrospective cohort, propensity match, EHR data shows no association between untoward outcomes with COVID. And that includes all-cause mortality, ventilation, kidney failure, the need for ECMO, hospitalization. Again, non being on a non-steroidal had no effect on this, and that doesn't surprise me. I'm not sure why it would. The drug is not immunosuppressive. It's not involved in the biology of ACE2 receptors or... The spike, how the spike protein attaches. I'm not sure why this was done. Another interesting study, anti-neutralizing antibodies. We're going to get into this later in talking about TDM, but this study of 282 inflammatory arthritis patients who had um, assays for, and they were all on TNF inhibitors. Um, um, how many do you think had anti-neutralizing antibodies? So this would probably be infliximab, matalimumab. It's low. It's 3.9%. Is that worth even measuring? My opinion, no. No, but if you did, and if you're one of the 11 out of the 282, 
and you had these, you're more likely to be a smoker, have higher disease activity, worse function, and higher inflammatory markers. Wouldn't you be worried about those people based on smoking, disease activity, poor function, and inflammatory markers? I don't think anti-drug antibodies here, neutralizing antibodies, are important in my decision-making. But those of you who like such assays, hold on. We're going to talk about TDM. Let's go right to TDM right now. You know, ULAR put out a position piece, um, ULAR guidance on... Uh, therapeutic drug monitoring or TDM bottom line five overarching principles 13 recommendations they say that after the literature review and discussion by their expert panel that they cannot proactively recommend therapeutic drug marketing but that maybe in certain scenarios you should do therapeutic drug uh, uh, monitoring and what they're talking about here is always doing the neutralizing antibody tests with the serum or plasma levels of the of the antibody like infliximab or adalimumab when paired together maybe it helps you in you know understanding why someone had a loss of efficacy or why someone had a hypersensitivity reaction but honestly is it worth the hassle of getting the test and waiting for the results to make a decision you've got plenty of other options move on i don't do therapeutic drug monitoring who does it's mostly gi and there's some advocates for this in dermatology but remember in gi and dermatology they're not always on chronic infliximab or adalimumab they tend to go on and off right um, they tend not to be on background DMARs like methotrexate, the flunamide, azathioprine, etc. So, for these reasons, you know, maybe they're more likely to have anti-drug antibodies, especially if you're starting and stopping. Uh, a nice study came from um, the, the VA Center looking at uh, multimorbidity. I don't know if you've seen the um, room now. has got a replay of uh, Elena Maestadova's uh video and lecture at room now live on multimorbidity really worth looking at it's a short half hour video this study of 345 patients showed that ra patients do have more multimorbidity that means more than one comorbidity and the ones that are most represented are cardiopulmonary cardiometabolic mental health and chronic pain disorders where there's a 17 percent to 300 percent increased risk of having those JAMA had a, a useful paper giving you a comparative analysis of amitriptyline versus FDA-approved therapies in patients with fibromyalgia. Uh, we don't often discuss fibromyalgia. They looked at almost 12,000 patients in this cohort and looked at um, 60 and 120 milligram doses of Cymbalta duloxetine compared to 300, 450, and 600 milligram doses of pregabalin, Lyrica, or 100 and 200 milligram doses of um, milnasopran or Savella, and they compared these two uh, to amitriptyline. In the end, in the comparisons, the things that stood out was duloxetine was better and had the best control of pain and depression, and amitriptyline was more effective than the others at sleep control and quality of life, and only a lot of those other drugs had a high dropout rate. Um, the one that had the least dropout rate was uh, amitriptyline or Elevil. I think this informs and supports what I, in fact, do. I use trazodone and, and amitriptyline for um, sleep and quality of life and fatigue. 
Um, not for depression. I don't know that it does much for pain. But if I'm dealing with pain, um, I, I, I do like to use uh, duloxetine over the other agents. I've not really had, and you know, we've talked before about, um, especially duloxetine, not doing very well in um, comparative analyses or population or large population-based studies post-marketing. Its effects have been sort of hit or miss. Um, but in this study, it looked pretty good looking at the published literature. Uh, Annals Rheumatic Disease had a viewpoint, what I would call a think piece, about can the SGLT2 inhibitors be protective in patients with lupus nephritis or um, GPA? It's a very interesting idea because these sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitors, SGLT2, are all the rave right now in the renal literature and the cardiovascular literature where better outcomes, better renal outcomes, lower, better survival have been consistently seen. So much so they're saying that patients should probably be, all patients um, with, you know, uh, either diabetes, renal disease and diabetes or heart failure should be on these as adjunctive therapy. We're talking about drugs like Invokana, Farxiga or Jardiance. I'm not going to give you their generic names, too hard to pronounce. Um, how do they work? Hard to know. They cause a naturesis, reduction in plasma volume. They uh, reduce adipokines and other pro-inflammatory cytokines, um, reduce oxidative stress, lower uric acid levels, and um, uh, reduce GFR and albumin uh, secretion by the kidney. So, um, again, these you know we do use a lot of, of, of renal protective therapy in our patients with lupus nephritis. Calcium channel blockers, for instance, um, or ACE inhibitors. Uh, here, you know, this might be replacing that. Look for studies in this in the future. Our last report was a report comes from Dan Solomon's group on cardiovascular risk in patients with calcium pyrophosphate disease. I found this interesting because I certainly know about cardiovascular risk in RA, in chronic inflammation, in gout patients even, but I am not aware of anything that would say the same exists for patients who have calcium pyrophosphate uh, arthritis. Uh, and this is uh, looking at patients within the EMR system for the Mass General and Brigham Hospitals uh, EMRs, and they studied patients almost over a 20-plus year period, and they found 1,200 patients with a diagnosis of acute calcium pyrophosphate arthritis, and they had compared that to 3,800 match comparators. Uh, and guess what? Those who had acute calcium pyrophosphate arthritis, and I assume that these are presentations to the emergency room, had a significantly higher, a 32% higher risk of MACE in the first two years after the arthritis was identified. This sort of panned out over time that, um, that this was seen not only for MACE events, but also other non-fatal cardiovascular events. The best results were seen in the first two years. Um, it became a little less obvious in years two through 10 in long-term follow-up. Suggesting that, again, if you're bad enough to get acute calcium pyrophosphate disease, you're probably going to have chronic inflammatory calcium pyrophosphate disease. And inflammation probably is what driving is driving that risk. But that's an extrapolation on my part. We would certainly like to see more studies of this. Um, I want to remind you next week, starting on Wednesday, ULAR is beginning. It's day one of ULAR. Room now will be reporting from Copenhagen. We'll have our faculty there. Um, we'll be reporting each day as it happens. Uh, they be published around 
4 or 5 p.m. Eastern time every day. So we'll be here having day one reports on day one, two, three, and day four on Saturday. You'll be getting a report as well. Again, look for a lot of good articles, a lot of great tweets, and also a lot of good videos and podcasts coming out of that meeting. Tune in. It's going to be exciting next week at ULAR. Bye-bye.